You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. It's a question that goes back as far as Cain and Abel. It's a question that needed to be asked before ancient Israel became divided by a civil war. It's a question all of us ask at some point in our lives. And yet it's a question that no matter how many times it's asked, seems to be a resounding no for an answer. And the question is, can't we all just get along? If we've been alive long enough to remember, most of us probably associate the asking of this question with a man named Rodney King. Rodney King, a person of color who had been accosted by four Los Angeles police officers, as recorded on video, asked this question as a plea for peace after Los Angeles exploded into horrible violence and riots in 1992 because the police officers involved in his assault were acquitted. And as this week's news regarding the tragic and wrongful death of Breonna Taylor reveals, not much has changed since Mr. King uttered those words more than 25 years ago. Recent events in our country continue to remind us that we are a nation divided by race, by politics, even our point of view regarding this global pandemic. While we clearly don't agree with each other, increasingly it appears we really don't like each other either, sometimes even hating each other to the point of confrontation and violence. And the problem is not confined to America. Every day brings news headlines from around the globe of some new conflict or outbreak somewhere on this blood-soaked planet. Can't we all just get along? In a way, That's the question James is asking us today. But he won't just be asking why we continue to feud with each other. James is also going to tell us how we can stop fighting, how we can actually get along with each other. The invitation and challenge for us today will be to acknowledge and observe the prescription he offers to us. So let's hear it from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Good morning. The scripture reading for this morning is from the book of James, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Be, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why do we fight? Why are we often at odds with each other? What causes us sometimes to go to war with another person? This is the question James poses to us. But notice, he doesn't wait for our answer. James answers his query with a rhetorical question, meaning James already knows the answer. What he's about to share in the verses that follow is to help us to recognize the cause of much of our conflicts. And what is James's answer? Fights and quarrels among us are caused by our desires that battle within us. In order to get to the root of what James is revealing here, let's break down what exactly he means by our desires. The word translated as desires here comes from a Greek word that has a very strong negative connotation, referring to a longing or craving that becomes an end in itself at the expense of other things. But what does that mean? How does this happen? Well, all of us share common desires that are God-given. Desires for love and well-being, for security and protection, for fruitfulness, for harmonious relationships in life. These desires, given to us by God, are intended to be fulfilled by God. In other words, God has instilled these desires within us so that we would look to and rely upon Him, so that the basis of our relationship with God would derive from our acknowledgement that God is the provider and sustainer of our lives. However, these natural, God-given, good desires can and will go bad when we seek to fulfill them on our own, apart from our Creator. When we convince ourselves that satisfying these desires are entirely up to us, whether we truly believe we're on our own because we think there is no God, or because we refuse to acknowledge that all good things come alone from God's hand, our desires become distorted. Apart from God, instead of engaging the fulfillment of these desires out of a posture of confident expectancy and abiding trust, we pursue them out of a mindset of fear and uncertainty. If I believe I'm alone, or it's up to me, in achieving these desires that drive us, then life becomes not the mutual reception of divine blessing for all, but a challenge and a competition in which it is every person for themselves. And when life is viewed as a competition fulfilling those desires, looking for love and our well-being, seeking security and protection, working towards fruitfulness in life, even pursuing relationships, they all become defined by getting ahead, by having more than everyone else. Once I start to think fulfilling those desires is up to me, our God-given desires become self-centered desires. When this happens, our desires change from what we need. This is important. God-given desires are about what we need, and again, they lead us back to the God who provides everything that we need. But when our desires become self-centered rather than God-given, our focus, our fixation changes from what we need to what we want. Again, when life is a competition, when it's you against me, each of us against the rest of the world, the, then needs become eclipsed by wants because it is not enough. It's not enough to have what we need. To win, to succeed, to be secure, to stay on top, to remain ahead, we want more. We want more than we have. We want more than we need. Do we remember the definition of the word James uses here that is translated as desires, a longing that becomes an end in itself at the expense of other things? The fulfillment of our God-given desires is supposed to lead to contentment. 
When we let God fulfill those desires, we find contentment not in the desires themselves, but in the one who fulfills them. In other words, our contentment is found in our relationship with our Creator. Part of God supplying what we need is not only providing the need itself, but making possible the enjoyment, the satisfaction from the fulfillment of that need. But apart from God, as our desires become distorted, as our desires become self-centered, as we become focused not on what we need, but on what we want, we never experience contentment. Because whatever we desire becomes an end in itself. Meaning we continue to be driven by wanting more, and therefore never having enough. Apart from God, we may experience momentary satisfaction, but when wanting becomes an end in itself, we always want more. Our wants always increase. Our wants are never satisfied. And constantly fixated on what we want, but never having enough, we become consumed by our desires at the expense of our own contentment. And this internal conflict, the war within that James describes us as having continually wanting more but never having enough, it heightens our insecurity and inevitably spills out into our relationships with each other. Why can't we all just get along? Because my wants collide with your wants. Your wants bump up against mine. Deep down in the midst of our competing agendas, we know we can't all get what we want, but the hell if we're not gonna try to attempt, to beg, to borrow, to steal as much as we can so that we can be self-satisfied. When our distorted desires are not met, when we can't get what we want in the way we want, when we want it, we become tempted to try and seize power and control that doesn't belong to us, that only belongs to God. And what happens when we attempt to play God? Destruction, death, James calls it for what it is. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. James writes, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. James, no doubt, is employing a bit of hyperbole here as he talks about us killing each other because we can't get what we want. And yet, there are ways to kill another person beyond actually taking someone else's life. Our envy of others, due to our frustrated desires, can lead us to kill our relationship with them to gossip about them to others in an effort to kill their reputation, or simply to kill our feelings towards them because we are so unhappy they have it better than we do. And more often than not, we covet what another person has because of an unfulfilled want in our life. We want to be loved like that. We want to be that well off. We want to have that kind of security. We want to see that kind of fruitfulness in our life. And so we tell ourselves, it's not fair. We have a right not only to want what they have, but to do whatever it takes to get it. Driven by our distorted desires, our never-ending wants, James says, we go to war. We create, we perpetuate conflict. We will even get violent about it. The tragic irony of our broken humanity is this. As we defiantly demand and will even fight for all our wants, the basic needs of all people still remain unfulfilled. Dwell on that for a moment. The fact is, God can meet all our needs, all the needs of this world. That's what scripture promises. What gets in the way is when our wants eclipse the needs of others. James goes on to tell us, you do not have because you do not ask. Now, this is one verse that's a favorite of many, but it's also a classic example of how people misquote what the Bible actually says. Those who advance the name it and claim it or the prosperity gospel often take this verse out of context to argue if you're not being blessed with health, wealth, and prosperity by the Lord, it's simply because you haven't asked for these things. You haven't asked in true faith for what the Lord wants to give you. 
But let's notice what the rest of the verse says. James writes, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Again, let it be perfectly clear. Our God-given desires are for what we need. God intends for us to receive what we need by asking him. He is our father, the one from whom all the blessings of this life flow. So on the one hand, James is declaring we do not have because it doesn't even occur to us to ask God because we're looking for our own glory, not God's. How can we possibly receive anything God desires to give us if we're so busy attempting to assume power and take control of our lives? If we're counting on ourselves, then we're not going to be counting on God, and therefore we will be unable to receive what he is ready to give us. On the other hand, James is saying, even when we do think to ask God, our distorted desires dictate our prayer life in selfish ways. The prayers we end up lifting up are for what we want, what we want, not for what God wants for us. Let's think about that for a second. When's the last time we prayed for what God wants for us versus for what we want from God? When's the last time you prayed for God's will, not yours, to be done? Is that how Jesus taught us to pray? James is telling us God is not to be viewed as merely a means to our own ends. Our Father isn't as interested in giving us what we want as He is giving us what He wants for us. Our Father is committed to giving us what we need, what is necessary, what is best for us, what will enable us to flourish, not just today, but for eternity. Do we pray out of this conviction? Or do we pray out of the insistence that we know better than the Lord? I don't know if you noticed, but at this point in the passage, James gets pretty fired up. James accuses us of adultery as he insists we cannot be friends of the world without ending up being an enemy of God. He questions us as to whether or not we think the Bible is kidding around when it repeatedly states our God is a jealous God, jealous in his desire for an exclusive relationship with us. What is James getting so animated about? Well, first of all, we need to understand what James means by the world. He doesn't mean the physical earth itself or the natural creation or the world of human beings. When James speaks of friendship with the world, he's talking about embracing a philosophy, a spirit of living that is divorced from the way of God. One that tells us to live for ourselves, that life is all about me, that I am the author of my own story. Notice, by the way, this is the mindset that distorts our God-given desires and makes them self-centered rather than God-centered. But why does, this, why does being friendly with this kind of belief system make us enemies with God? Because when we buy into the lie that the world revolves around me, we all end up competing to be the center of the universe. And the net result of that is the disorder, the, the abuse, the destruction of all that God created, including us. And our Father won't stand for that. As James reminds us, as the Bible declares, our God is a jealous God. But wait a second, isn't jealousy a bad thing? Not necessarily. Jealousy can be good or bad. There can be two kinds of jealousy in a relationship. There can be jealousy born of our insecurity, our fear that you'll find something or someone better, and therefore we become extremely possessive for the sake of protecting ourselves. And then there can be jealousy born of the security of genuine love. That's legitimate, selfless care and concern for protecting the well-being of the other person. This kind of jealousy truly wants what is best for the other, and therefore is opposed to anything that threatens or harms that person. 
My friends, our God is not jealous because of any insecurity in his heart. Think about it. If God wanted to absolutely control us out of a sense of fear or ego, then God would not have given us free will. Our Father created us with the possibility, the risk of breaking his heart. And that's love. And therefore, God's jealousy for us stems from that love. Our Creator is not neutral about us and what we do to ourselves and to each other. God created us with our best in mind, and He is passionate about seeking all the good He intends for us to come to fruition. Because He loves us wholly and completely, God will not be satisfied with each of us doing whatever with our lives when He has so much better in mind for us. Out of his devotion and commitment to the best for us, our Father refuses to stand idly by as we turn against and destroy each other. And therefore, out of his jealousy, God will resist any and all forces that would come between us and him. We worship a God who is forgiving us life. And therefore, for the sake of our salvation, he will oppose any attempts we pursue that in the end only bring death to us and our relationships. When James accuses us of adultery, he's invoking a repeated biblical image of our relationship with God as being like that of a marriage. And this spousal metaphor became a description of the Lord's relationship with Israel. And then with the coming of Jesus, it became carried over into the Lord's relationship with his church as the bride of Christ. And through this metaphor, James is making it clear we can't have it both ways. We can't claim to be in a committed relationship with God while we continue to maintain a long-running affair with the way of the world with a mindset and a pattern of living that's all about me, doing it my way, getting everything I want at the expense of others, not getting what they need. The more we keep insisting on grasping and clinging to power and control, the more we are cheating on God because we are not yielding to His control. We're not serving out of His power. And there's a name for this kind of self-posturing. It's called our ego, our pride, but as James, in quoting Proverbs 3 in this passage, reminds us, the proud only meet resistance from God. Now, it's not that having a little pride in ourselves and in our work is a bad thing. It's pride unchecked that's the problem. When our pride leads us to resist or refuse to acknowledge, to accept, or to defer to God as the one who is ultimately in control from whom all power is given, such pride not only gets in the way of our relationship with God, it also gets in the way of our relationships with others. It often leads to our mistreatment of others, which is ultimately to mistreat God, in whose image we are all made. Therefore, God opposes the proud. He resists our resistance because he loves all of us too much not to. Now, with the rest of this passage, James moves from giving us a diagnosis of the problem to offering us a prescription of how to be made well again. And James's prescription isn't that surprising. He calls us to humility. And that makes sense because, after all, James just told us that's the posture God favors from us, humility. Notice also in the list of instructions James is about to give us, they're bookended by this theme of humility. He starts the list with, submit yourselves to God, and then he ends it with, humble yourselves before the Lord. However, if we read through that list carefully, James isn't just calling us to humble ourselves in a general way. He's calling us to humble ourselves in a specific way. He's calling us to humble ourselves through repentance, meaning to change direction, to turn around and stop living for me first. James gets specific, right? He urges us to resist the devil and to come near to God. 
My friends, that which is evil in this world is of the devil and the demonic, spiritual forces opposed to God, forces of evil that continue to tempt and to assault us even though they've already lost because of Christ's victory on the cross, even though their destiny is annihilation when all things will be made new. Nonetheless, the devil and these forces persist to take down, to take as many of us with them as they can. Understand the devil wants you to live for yourself apart from God because that makes you fair game and an easy target. The devil thrives on our, on our unhealthy fears and our uncontrollable anger, even while stroking our ego, our pride, our selfish ambition, our hunger for validation, recognition, and therefore our bitter envy of others. But James tells us to resist the devil by drawing near to God, because there's only two directions really we can go in life, running into trouble or running away from it, following Jesus or going our own way. One way leads to unnecessary pain that not only affects us, but hurts others and ultimately leads to death. The other way, the only way, drawing near to God, following Jesus leads to peace, peace within ourselves and peace with others, life beyond our failures, our mistakes, our sins, and even death itself. Which way are we running? Away from God or back towards the Lord? Because humble repentance, heading in the right direction, back home to our Heavenly Father, James says, involves purifying our hearts from being divided. We need to stop paying lip service and giving God a quick nod of praise on Sunday, but then going out the back door to have another fling with the ways of this world. When James tells us to grieve, to change our laughter to mourning and our gloom to joy, James is cautioning us to treat our sin seriously. We need to stop minimizing going our own way, doing whatever we want to do apart from God's will for us. It's not really a big deal. Or worse, promoting living for ourselves as a good thing. Because living apart from God is no joke. Apart from God, it's all bad news. Nothing good ever comes of it. And in the end, it never ends well for anybody, including us. James is calling us to repentance, offering us a prescription to get back on track. But here's the thing. A prescription is only good if we actually take it. We can't just listen to James today and leave it at admitting we have a problem. Admitting you have a problem is the first step, but the most crucial step is the next one, addressing the problem by letting go and receiving help. How many Christians confess their need for Jesus but don't position or posture themselves to be changed by Jesus? How many of us have heard the Spirit speak into our lives through the Word of God, opening our eyes and convicting us. And in response, we say, you know, you're right, Lord. You're so right. But then we go right back to living on our own, apart from God. Beloved, confession is good for the soul. But repentance is actually putting our lives in God's hands. Now, I know perhaps this all sounds a bit overwhelming. I mean, how can we possibly live a life that won't provoke God to jealousy? I mean, how can I ever be faithful to the person Christ sees in me, the person the Lord created me to become? How can we conceivably manage to avoid buying in to all the competition and division, all the conflict and the fighting that marks this broken world? On our own, we can't. But if we repent, if we submit and commit to Christ, if we put our lives into the Lord's hands, then we can do it because God will do it in and through us. In the midst of everything else James tells us today, we cannot miss the most important thing he declares in this passage. Verse 6, but he gives us more grace. We can't change ourselves, but we can be changed, changed for the better, even despite ourselves, because we worship a God who relentlessly pursues us. He's the Father who's always waiting, looking towards the horizon for us, running towards us, even as we keep our distance from him. 
He is the God who is tirelessly on our side, never offering us less grace, no matter what we do, but always having more and more grace to give. God gives us more grace through his limitless patience with us, even as we lose patience with ourselves. God gives us more grace through his steadfast love toward us, even when we believe we're not lovable anymore. God gives us more grace through his persistent faithfulness in always providing for us, even when we prove to be unfaithful to him. God gives us more grace because God's grace is greater than all our sin, greater than all our shame, greater than all our failures, greater than all this world can offer, greater even than all we can ever imagine or hope for on our own. The grace of God is not just the grace of past forgiveness. The grace of God is not just the grace of a future life beyond death. The grace of God is the Lord's inexhaustible generosity in equipping us to be changed, to be matured, to be transformed into the very best we can become together now. Can't we all just get along? And the answer is yes, we can. Thanks to the endless grace of God at work in and through us, we can do more than get along. We can flourish together in Christ. If each of us would repentantly humble ourselves, yielding the control and power of our lives to God, then we would be filled, flooded, empowered by the grace of God. And out of that grace of which God always has more to give, we would find the strength to stop living as slaves to our distorted desires and instead to start living in a way that God desires for us, for others and this world, they would become our desires as well. Out of the grace of God, we could stop competing and fighting with each other over what we want and instead work together by serving each other so that the Lord can provide the needs of everyone. It's possible. It just takes faith. It just takes you and I walking by faith, relying alone on the grace of God. Amen.